we have a lot of scripture for this Sunday, do we not? I looked at it in anticipation and saw two psalms for us to recite, and I thought, oh golly, that sure is a lot. But did you know that there are a lot of psalms in the Bible? And um, when I have visited with the brothers of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, I'm reminded of the recitation of the psalms and how important that is for God's people to recite them over and over and over again. So thanks for hanging in there for all of those verses. Mostly I thank you for it because it reminds us, the Psalms remind us, of our desire for God's provision and care and our concern that God doesn't do it. And we are mindful of that even in our first lesson today from 1 Kings. I want to talk a little bit about prophets. Prophets in the First Testament, as we see in Israel's history, communicate God's message for now. They summon people to respond today because of who God is and what God is up and doing. Think of John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, and he was understood to be a prophet because he said to folks, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He was giving direction for people in the now based on God's action and activity in the world, bringing about God's kingdom. And so he invited people to do something, to turn and to follow what was about to happen, as we know, in Jesus. In Israel's history, the spokesperson for Yahweh was the prophet. And it was the prophet who interpreted the promises and the demands of the covenant. Prophecy was related to politics. It was related to how people lived and worked in the world. And so perhaps it's because of that that we have some ambivalence about prophets. If we are to see one claiming to be one on a street corner holding up a cardboard sign that says what John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God has come near, we might just walk on by. We have ambivalence about prophets, but I think that's because we are ambivalent. I think our ambivalence says more about us than it does about the works of the prophets. We're ambivalent. Of all of creation, we're the only ones that seek to make meaning of life. No other created being actually works at making meaning. And we're somewhat uncertain about how to do that. We have different strategies for making meaning. We have different phrases. We have different measuring sticks for making meaning. But we're a little uncertain about whether or not we've claimed the right one. I think about the news and how we hear about the market or the job numbers or whatever, and those things, or or tariffs or lack thereof, or interest rates, all of those things, we try to make meaning of our life from them. What does it mean, we say, if this is where we are now? And how does what is happening affect our current actions? We make meaning through phrases. We'll say things, everything happens for a reason. And why do we say that? It's because we try to make meaning of the unexplainable in our lives. So I think our ambivalence about the prophets is really nothing to do with the prophets and everything to do with us. We're ambivalent. We're just not sure. Is that really what the prophet meant? And if that prophet did mean that, then what does that really mean for me now? And what if I do make a decision? And was that the best decision to make? And what are the repercussions of that decision? We are ambivalent. And we always have been. It's tempting to be scrutin, you know, to be scrutinous, if that's a word, um, with the scriptures, 
in a way that we don't even apply to ourselves. Sometimes we want the scriptures to be literal, but we don't even hold ourselves to that same standard. How many of you have ever said, that was the best day of my life? Really? Was it really the best day? Or are you trying to convey something about the best, about something about that day? And so that's what you use. You use that phrase, that was the best day of my life, or that was the worst day of my life. Also, we apply to Scripture something else that we don't apply to ourselves, which is a factual expectation. We want it to hold up under historical scrutiny. But you and I know that much of life is about the experience of life. And so there are times when we feel unheard, or we feel dismissed, or we feel overlooked. And if we were to apply a factual criterion to that, then we might say, really? No, you weren't dismissed. No, you weren't overlooked. You weren't ignored. But we've come to recognize in our common humanity that if I felt ignored or dismissed, then there's some level of truth to this. There's something that needs to be attended to. And so it's interesting to me that we do the same thing with scriptures. We, we try to hold them to some factual basis when we ourselves won't even expect that of ourselves or of one another. So I want to invite you to recognize, or maybe to open your heart and mind to, the truthfulness of Scripture. That it talks about truth. It does talk about it from an experienced perspective, that of God's chosen people, who are trying to make sense of all that's happening in their lives. They don't adhere to literalism any more than you and I do, but they do adhere to a sense of of community and understanding of themselves in relationship to the divine. And that is where the prophets are important. I want to look at the story of Elijah, who, as one commentator said, was understood to be the prophet par excellence. He was above and beyond. He was the prophet of all prophets. And so we should know his story. And in fact, it's important because people thought that Jesus might be Elijah. And when we know Elijah's story, then we can understand a little better of how people were experiencing Jesus and interpreting and making meaning of what he was doing in the world. Elijah shows up on the scene in 1 Kings kind of out of nowhere. He comes into a divided kingdom because after the days of Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel broke into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, And there was a lot of turmoil based on this division and in the relationship to the nations around it. So Elijah shows up in the kingdom of Israel, kind of out of nowhere, in a season of drought, which was not completely unfamiliar to this part of the world. It happened from time to time. And he seeks to speak what God is up to, to interpret the promises and demands of the covenant in relationship to the current circumstance. And so he talks about the drought happening, and what God is going to be doing. In 1 Kings 17, we come to recognize the severity of the drought, and in that chapter, we start to understand the importance of Elijah and his work in God's people. We begin to see that there was um, a relationship between Ahab, the king of Israel, and Elijah that was fraught because of Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Ahab had been married to Jezebel as a political measure. She was um, Phoenician, and in that marriage, it was hoped that there was peace that would be established between the kingdom of Israel and the neighbor. 
Jezebel was fervent for her devotion for the prophet Baal, the fertility god, which was the god of Phoenicia. And so she set out to put this god in the place of the, of the land of Israel, to claim some territory, if you will, not only for her god, but then for her nation. And these are the prophets that Elijah took issue with. They began to multiply. She imported prophets. She established temples. And Elijah was seeing that Ahab's um, willingness to accommodate his wife's religious practices was somewhat naive and a little bit apathetic. For he seemed almost indifferent to the ways that she was exercising her authority in this new kingdom. And this is what Elijah takes issue with. In the story that happens right before this morning's story, he challenges the prophets of Baal to see whose God is really God. And it's a dynamic and um, page-turning story where he invites them to call down rain, which is a symbol of the God of fertility, to call down rain onto the altar. And the prophets of Baal get busy. They work themselves into the prophetic frenzy that is demonstrative of prophets and they go around the altar and they do incantations and sing songs and nothing happens. And Elijah annoys them. He says, well, maybe, you know, maybe Baal's busy. Maybe he went to relieve himself. Yeah, that's what he says. Or maybe he's on vacation. Or maybe he took a nap and needs to be woken from his slumber. Do something more to get Baal's attention. And they fall for that. And they do. They cut themselves, do all kinds of other things to try to get the prophet Baal to respond. And after a while, Elijah says, it's my turn. And he goes and he reestablishes the altar, as Jewish people would do, Hebrew people would do. And he puts water around it, a symbol of fertility, but also a challenge to calling down fire upon it, a symbol of God. And he does, he prays. After everything is soaked and there's a trough of water around the altar, he prays and fire does indeed come down. The prophets of Baal are slaughtered. I don't know if it's Elijah's entourage that does that or if it's um, their own falling on their sword because they realize the futility of their efforts and if they don't kill themselves someone else will. But after that Elijah then goes on to do the works of God as best he can. But our lesson today picks up after that where Jezebel has gotten word of what Elijah has done. Ahab tells her and she, feeling challenged in her authority, then sets after Elijah and says to him, God help me if I don't do to you what was done to those prophets by the end of tomorrow. So you hear it's a threat on his life. And he sets out. He runs a day's journey to try to escape the terror that is to befall him. He takes with him his helper, but as he goes further, he leaves the guy behind knowing that he has to go yet further in escape. And he enters into the southern country of Judah, where Mount Horeb is, Mount Sinai, the place where Moses received the covenant. And that's where he goes to escape. You can see from our lesson today that he feels defeated. He is exhausted. 
He has done everything he can for God, and yet still evil prevails. Still Jezebel is pursuing him. What more can he do? Even after all of his efforts, things don't seem to have gotten better. And so he asks God to just take his life. He lays down, falls asleep, and is awakened and made provisions. There are provisions there for him. And he takes them and he travels further on until he finally reaches his destination, which is Mount Horeb. And again, he calls out to God, why is this happening? I've been fervent for you. I've done everything I can, and yet my life is miserable. I'm being pursued, and my death is imminent. I'm no better than anybody else. Just end it now. And God says to him, step aside, Elijah, because I'm going to come and be with you. Now, as we know the stories of Scripture, we can see the similarities between Moses and Elijah. For Moses also encountered God on this holy mountain. And Moses, um, and so we have that echo as we read Elijah's story. He is in a cave, and as things happen around him, he's discerning the presence of God. Is it in the wind? God is often in the wind. But no, it's not in the wind. Is it in the fire? No, God is not in the fire this time. God is in the sound of silence, a silence so profound that he can actually hear it. And God draws him out and says, you need to go back, for I'm about to do a new thing, and I need you. The truthfulness of this story is that God has got this. There, is, there are things that we cannot explain And there are things beyond our power. And we can feel that futility, that lost sense, as we navigate life. But the truthfulness of this story is that God has got this. And that God will not desert us, even in our darkest hour. I believe it's worthwhile to know these stories so that we can see God acting in our lives. Now, I know it might seem like a far-fetched idea to claim stories, these ancient ones, as our own. I remember someone who actually is no longer here saying to me once, Whitney, that's how God acted then, but God doesn't act that way now. Well, maybe it feels like God doesn't act that way now. But how is it when we open our eyes that we begin to see that God is acting in the world? I don't believe we fool ourselves by choosing a narrative in which to place our lives. In fact, we fool ourselves by thinking we don't have a narrative in which we place our lives. We do. We construct narrative all the time to make sense of our lives, all the time. And we are frustrated by the limits of anyone. I mentioned to you some earlier, but I'll just go on and say we wish that democracy would make sense of it all. And you know what? It makes sense of a lot of things. But it doesn't explain why people die or what happens after life ends. Democracy provides a really nice narrative for functioning, but it doesn't answer all the questions. Or maybe we choose the narrative of meritocracy. I think this is a favorite, actually, where we get what we deserve. And we like that story, especially if we like what we have. But meritocracy doesn't explain why people get the bad stuff, 
It doesn't explain when people have worked really hard and they still have nothing. It doesn't explain economic inequality. It doesn't explain the various isms that we have in our society where people are judged according to any number of standards. Meritocracy falls short. In a competitive world, we would like to think that we get what we deserve, but I have to say we don't. Either way, we don't get all the good that we deserve and we don't get all the bad that we deserve either. So you see, my friends, we claim a narrative. We do, whether we mean to or not, and the invitation of our faith is to claim this one. I remember years ago when we were back in Pennsylvania, Michael was the artistic director of an avant-garde theater company, and they did a play, which I hope I remember the title correctly, The Very Merry Scientology Pageant. I think that's right unauthorized Scientology pageant. It was like a Christmas pageant about Scientology. And their theater group did it with children, like we do our pageant with children. Um, and it was, um, it was interesting. <laughs> I went over, you know, the day after I'd seen it to visit with our neighbor friends, a best friend of Gabe's um, lived in the neighborhood next door, and they were Jewish, and I, you know, they always invited me to sit down for a cup of coffee when I'd come over to pick up Gabe, and, um, and I told them of what I'd seen, and I said, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy what Scientologists believe. And they're like, hmm. I said, but you know what? Who am I to speak? I'm a Christian. And they laughed. They said, yeah, we know. <laughs> we're Jewish. <laughs> you see, my friends, there's a craziness to all of these narratives. We fool ourselves to think that there isn't. The story of Elijah has questions that are left unanswered, but what the story does for us is place our lives in a story of God's provision and that God doesn't desert us when the going gets tough. And I have to say that as I've lived my life more fully into this narrative, I've discovered the truthfulness of it. That's what we're invited to do. Is it going to seem absurd to the world out there? Yeah, probably it will. Right up there with Scientology. But it all has an element of absurdity. What I love about the Christian narrative is that it draws us into being our best and recognizing that in others. It corrects us when we decide to abandon the highest aim, which is love. Again and again, it calls us to that. I think again about our sign out front and how we don't have love your enemy neighbor on there. But our scriptures tell us that's what we should do. And as Gustav Gutierrez said in his writing, he was a, a Latin American um, liberation theologian, he said, how can you love your enemy unless you have one? Doesn't Jesus know that we do? And so the Christian narrative draws us again and again into a relationship with the living God because there are things we can't explain. And there are things we don't have control over. And there are injustices in the world. But this story takes us again into the heart of a new way of trusting ourselves to a living God who relates to us in the here and now and draws us into a love that expands beyond us into the world. That's why what I think is worth telling. The story of the man who was possessed by demons, we could make any sense of that we want to. We could explain it in any number of ways. But the point is this. God was not intimidated by this man's worst fears.
God was not afraid to go into the place where no one else would. And in meeting that man there, he changed his life. He promises to do the same for us. Amen.